You're listening to the New Orleans Mafia Podcast. Where you at, Leo? Welcome to the New Orleans Mafia Podcast. I'm Leo Mixon. I'd like to thank everyone who's, who's listened so far. The uh, last episode, Murder at Mosques, came out pretty well, and uh, quite a few people listened to it. I, I thank you guys so very much. I didn't know if I was going to be just doing this for myself. Um, this episode, we're going to do something a little different. I'm going to do a book review episode. Uh, there's a lot written about New Orleans. There's a lot written about the Mafia. Um, a lot of the books are, are, are interesting. Some of them are factual some absolutely aren't i haven't found any yet that's like completely factual but yeah you never know one might pop up sometime so i'm going to review uh three books this episode and uh, all of them have some connection and i guess the, the first one we're going to start with here there are these say, statements that people make um one of them is i don't like to speak ill of the dead now that's an interesting uh rule there because as soon as you make a statement like that, that's like saying, I don't want to sound racist. Well, that means the next thing you say is going to be incredibly fucking racist. And so when those people say, I don't like to speak ill of the dead, that means I'm about to fucking speak ill of the dead. That's what I'm going to do next. Uh, but for me, I don't really care about that rule because um, for that reason, I don't, I don't fucking care. So I'm going to speak ill of the dead now. Um, the first book that we're talking about is a book by Frenchie Boyette, and uh, he was working with Matthew Randazzo V, and the book is called Mr. New Orleans. Now, this is uh, published February 1st, 2010 as an autobiography, but it was written along with a professional writer, so I'm going to say, you know, you got to give some, some latitude there. It's hard to tell when you're writing with a professional writer. Uh, what words are the guy who's being written about and what words come from the writer? Um, so, you know, there's a little bit of a latitude for artistic license there. But there's a difference between artistic license and outright fiction. Now, this book begins with a massive disclaimer. Uh, the, the author, uh, the guy who actually wrote it, the professional author, he's trying to say, you know... Uh, they take this with a grain of salt. Uh, these stories, they, they might not be 100% accurate, but you know, we tried to do the best we can. Um, that, that disclaimer doesn't cover using real people in fictional events. That just isn't okay. You know, these fictional events, they never happened, and you're ascribing real people to doing these things. That's not artistic license. Now, I mean, Randazzo, I guess, could weigh in on the subject, but, you know, Boyette, uh, he was stabbed to death at 79 during an argument with his roommate, or a, a former roommate, and what the news described as a flophouse. Uh, apparently, the roommate had accused Boyette of stealing a guitar, and they got into an argument, and the roommate stabs him to death. Um, so, at 79, that's where he was. Now... Looking through the news reports, uh, as, I was, as I was putting this together after reading the book, I've seen Bouillette classified as Carlos Marcelo's personal fixer, um, the mafia liaison between Marcelo and Governor Edwin Edwards, and an underworld legend. Now, 
the, the way the newspapers came about all of this is that's what Frenchie Brouillet called himself. Uh, and add to that, um, he also says he was a pimp with a heart of gold, an alcoholic, and a drug addict. Now, I'm going to tell you, I'm not the first person to review this book by saying, I've never heard of this guy. You know, I don't claim to know everything. I read a lot. I, you know, I've been around uh, the New Orleans area a lot. Uh, but, you know, hey, maybe, you know, there are people that have come through there that, that are real people I didn't know about. Um, so I, I'll take it for what it's worth. Now, this book employs a, a storytelling device that can only go so far. And what it is, is at the beginning of every fantastical story, Boyette says something really self-deprecating. You know, hey, I was just this poor, dumb guy in this situation, and I was lucky to get out of it. But uh, here's how that goes, and let me give you a little wink and a nod to show, no, I really wasn't dumb, and no, I really wasn't lucky. I was brilliant, and that's how I made it through this whole thing. Um, he, he will go on to describe just how thick in the action he was, how he was an integral part of this story. I mean, I guess, I guess he's thinking if I start every story with, oh, not me, I'm just a harmless jackass on the sidelines. Now, here's how I made everything happen. I guess he thinks that's going to make it more believable. Um, and he's going to take it with, you know, uh, without questioning it that this is the accurate story. And, and it's just not. I mean, now, I will tell you, you will not get very far into Mr. New Orleans before running up against things that just don't track his reality. Um, okay, early, early fucking scene. You got Carlos Marcello and Sammy Labruzzo standing outside Boyette's house, throwing rocks at his window and yelling for him uh, because they're too scared of his dog. Um... Marcelo is said to be the one who's standing there yelling at the house, trying to get his attention. Man, there's so much wrong with this, I don't even know where to start. Uh, I don't know if anyone rises to the level of importance that Carlos Marcelo would be standing in the yard and yelling and throwing rocks. Uh, but in the highly unlikely chance that they did, uh, it wouldn't be some non-family associate. Uh, people I've discussed with this who knew Marcelo well said so they couldn't imagine him yelling uh, to get somebody's attention in public for any reason. Now, Briette makes claim to many discussions of illegal acts with Marcello over the years and says uh, Marcello would call him directly to uh, send him on missions to get things done. Uh, it's important to remember here the way a mafia family works. It's structured with all these layers around the head of the family. Um, it, it goes so far beyond what I would consider the basic concept of plausible deniability. Um, the boss is insulated. He has got ring after ring around him when anything criminal is discussed. Um, there's so many cutoffs so that they can't be tied back to him. I mean, that is the entire reason that the RICO law was written, because they were finding it impossible to get to the boss because of all the, all the uh, drops in between him uh, that couldn't be connected back to him. I mean, trying to pierce that veil, that's why they wrote Rico. Now, if you think about that, 
it's pretty unlikely the boss of the family is going to go directly to this 20-something-year-old guy from Marksville, Louisiana, who isn't part of the family and never will be. I mean, you can have some associates that become pretty trusted, and they're still going to very seldom get that kind of access, if ever. I mean, the only exceptions I can think of are like, you know, maybe Maya Lansky, uh, to an extent Bugsy Siegel. But, I mean, those guys are legendary, and uh, Frenchie Bouillette, despite saying he's legendary many times, he really isn't legendary. Now, there's a, there's a couple of points in there that just it makes you cringe. You know, you, you've been at a party, and somebody's telling you a story, and you, you get into the middle of it there, and you go, oh, God, he's lying about this shit. No, I know about that, and... Yeah, this couldn't possibly be true. And you just, you feel bad for the person. And, you know, Brouillette claims to have uh, been introduced to Frank Costello. And, of course, Costello immediately loved and trusted Brouillette. You know, he was just amazing. And, you know, as a matter of fact, pretty much everybody who ever met Frenchie Brouillette immediately loved and trusted him and wanted him to be part of their life. Um, here's another cringy one. He constantly refers to Carlos Marcelo as the little big man. Now, I've read a lot of accounts uh, from both people in the life and the FBI and, you know, whoever you want to talk. Yeah, Marcelo was known as the little man. He was never fucking known as the little big man. Um, that's, I think that was maybe a, a movie or something to that title, but it certainly wasn't Carlos Mosello. Now, Briette goes on, he, he makes a joke at one point where he wants to say, oh, you know, Carlos Marcello was the first African-American mafia leader. As though that's going to be clever. Because, you know, yeah, Marcello was born in Tunisia, which is part of Africa. Uh, only problem there, he wasn't ever an American citizen. That's where all the bullshit and the problems with, uh, getting shipped off to Guatemala and all that nonsense came from. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sure, uh, Marcelo would have loved it if he, if he could have been an American citizen. But, yeah, that's, that's not even, it's, it's a poor joke and poor taste that isn't even accurate. Now, Briette discusses also that he would put people on the record. Now, going on the record is something that a, a made guy can do to bring an associate in, and it pretty much reserves the whatever racket that associate brings to the table uh, goes through this guy. I mean, he still has to kick up and everything, and nothing else changes there, but you know, being put on the record is is pretty much going to the to the uh to the uh, boss or your cow or whoever you know is ahead uh, above you and saying, hey, this guy is going to be uh, working for me and I'm responsible for him. That is not something that a, a non-member really can do. I don't know what he'd be putting on the record with himself, I guess. Um, now you're on the record with me so that now I know about it, I guess. Oh, but you know, Briette even goes a little further. 
he goes into saying, oh, I never committed a murder. All the murders that would have benefited me happened while I was, wink, wink, out of town. Um, yeah, uh, that's kind of weak. And I understand, you know, while he was alive, you can't say anything about that. But eh, it, it, on top of everything else, it's, it's pretty grim. Now, I could probably spend a couple of hours breaking down all the ways uh, the relationship claim with Carlos Mosello couldn't have existed. But man, there's a lot more to unpack in this book. And the continued pattern reflects back on, you know, on the Marcelo claims as well. You look at the rest of the people uh, he claimed to be so close to and, yeah, use that to kind of establish a repeating pattern here. But yet, I mean, he goes on to describe a close relationship with his cousin, Edwin Edwards. Now, if any of you are not around uh, Louisiana, don't follow that kind of the political news. Edwards was a governor of Louisiana. Um, he was known as, as kind of an open criminal governor almost. You know, he just said, hey, you know, sure, I do some shady shit, but the state does great when I'm in the house uh, and the state does shitty when I'm not. So, you know, elect me if you want to do well. And, you know, that was it. Now, Edwin ended up going to prison over that, but eh. Now, the way Bruyette describes his relationship with Edwards I mean, you would believe they were first cousins, they raised sharing the same tit. Turns out they're third cousins once removed. Now, the, uh, Edwards was asked to comment on Briette's death, and Edwards gave one of those signature statements that made Edwin such a great politician. He said, uh, well, I hadn't heard of his death, uh, but, you know, violence is a bad thing, and um, I'm sure Briette had always been a, a great supporter. You know, we had a long relationship, but not close uh, relationship, you know, through the years. I ran into him. He ran into me. Now, I, I will tell you, I've met Edwin a handful of times over the years, just at events and such. And I bet if you gave him the backstory, you could get him to give just as complimentary a statement on me if I had died and you told him who I was and he doesn't know me at all. I mean, shit, if you told him I voted for him a few times, it might even get better. Now, once this book gets rolling, you're going to be reminded of something. Um, I think Bruyette thought that Forrest Gump was a real autobiography. And he went, man, that's fucking cool, but I need to meet a lot more people, and they need to be a lot more famous, and they all need to love me as well. So, I mean, on the list of people, just a few of them, that he says, oh my God, they gave, you know, he talks about meeting Dean Martin and Dean Martin giving him a jacket that was a, a Father's Day present to Dean from one of his children. And he meets Jerry Lee Lewis and brightens Jerry Lee Lewis's day and meets Liberace and, and introduces Liberace to people he uh, couldn't have met otherwise. Uh, he meets Jimmy Swaggart and provides whores for him, it, you know. That one may be true. I mean, Jimmy Swaggart uh, pretty much uh, started on the bottom and dug his way in. Uh, but, uh, you know, Danny Thomas is another one. Uh, the Neville brothers. Everybody just wanted to be his best friend and thought he was the most incredible human being they had ever met. Now, at this point, we get into uh, everyone's favorite conspiracy crime, the JFK assassination. Now, 
Bruyette says, you know, hey, I was around for the planning, and I know that some of my friends pulled off the Kennedy assassination, um, but I, you know, I wasn't really, I, there was not much I could, I could know, except that, you know, my friends told me a stunning amount of information about the assassination, including who did it, where they were, what they did, what the plan was, you know, because people who have just committed perhaps I'm going to say maybe one of the most daring murders in history uh, are going to say, you know, let's share everything with the pimp alcoholic drug addict who has like a million opportunities to get arrested and is going to need information to try to get his sentence reduced. Now, Bruyette says he's got a pimp business which runs concurrent with, you know, most of the other action in the book. Um, here's another one that I just had a hard time uh, going back and figuring out here because he, he's got a long-term rival with a, a man named Ernest Snake Gonzalez. Now, Snake Gonzalez was a real dude. Um, but according to what I could find, and, you know, if, any, if I'm wrong, somebody let me know, uh, Snake Gonzalez died in 1958. And Bruyette came to New Orleans uh, by his own account in 1953. So that only gives him five years to have what sounds like a decades-long rivalry with this guy. But, you know, on the pimp side, Snake Gonzalez wasn't the most interesting one. Um, his life uh, bumps him up against, according to him again, uh, the famous New Orleans madam, Norma Wallace. Now, Norma Wallace, is a, she is a, a real interesting character. Um, she was a, a madam and a landlady, and um, she hated pimps. Hated pimps with a fucking passion. Except, of course, Frenchie. Frenchie Bourgette, uh, she was the he was the only pimp she ever loved. And she thought Frenchie was great, and he could put girls in her house, and he was her best friend in the world, uh, according to Frenchie. They, uh, Frenchie says, oh my God, I'm pretty sure I could have lost my virginity to Norma Wallace, but I just didn't know and I didn't plan it out. Um, but we had this platonic love affair for the rest of our lives and she taught me how to treat girls and she taught me how to make, uh, a, a sex business run. And the interesting part of that is, um... Norma Wallace also wrote a book. She also recorded a lot of taped interviews. So I think it'd be interesting to hear what Norma Wallace has to say about it, which gives me a nice little segue into the, to the second book that I want to review. And um, that's going to be The Last Madam by Christine Wills. Now that's the story of Norma Wallace and... We're going to see how, how Norma Wallace handles the, the Frenchie Bruyette love affair in her book. I want to start by saying I found the story of Norma Wallace to be very credible. I mean, I don't think that that's because of what she said uh, as much as it was for what she didn't say. I mean, she didn't self-aggrandize, but then she didn't attempt to diminish the place she held in the grand scheme. I mean, she was, she was in New Orleans for a long time and ran a big house. Um... She has some amazing stories in this book, and I'm not, you know, I'm not going to spoil them for you, because this is one, um, the Frenchie Bouillette book, 
I guess if you want to read it as a fictional tale um, with some names you'll recognize, it's okay. But I just, even as fiction, I wouldn't recommend it. It's just not, it's not compelling. Um, it's, it's cringy. But the Norma Wallace book, she really does lay this stuff out. It's very nice. Um, I highly would recommend uh, The Last Madam. The Last Madam is a great book. And she has a couple of connections with the mafia, um, but there's not a lot in there about it. That's something else you'll find, is that people who really did have those connections know not to fucking talk about it. Now, she would uh, she would go to the bar at the town and country. You know, it was Carlos Marcello's uh, hotel down on Airline Highway. And uh, she, she'd go to the bar there because it was a place that she felt comfortable. You know, I think she could let down that personality that she felt she had to keep on, you know, the character she had created for herself. Uh, if she's in a bar in the quarter, uh, she's got to be on. Um, it it kind of sounded like the town and country was a place she could kind of put her feet up and let her hair down sort of thing. Um, not, not that she ever did that a lot, but... It's, it was a little, you know, that's how she describes knowing Marcello. She doesn't say anything else about him. Um, the only serious mafia connection she has isn't with the New Orleans family. Um, just as a kind of a thing that just happened, she ends up having an on-again, off-again affair with uh, Sam Golfbag Hunt out of the Chicago outfit. Now, uh, Sam Hunt is... Nicknamed after the fact that he was uh, caught one time carrying a shotgun in a golf bag um, while he was, you know, looking for someone, and that kind of became his trademark. Um, now he was the real deal, though. I mean, this is a guy who was—he was an enforcer in the midst of the heyday of the uh, of the outfit in Chicago, right there in the middle of Prohibition. Um, he had a lot of money. He was running around with Tony Joe Batters, Ricardo. Um, you know they were they were contemporaries there, and it's rumored that Hunt uh, financed Norma's purchase of her most famous house, the one at uh, 1026 Conti. Now 1026, just interestingly, had formerly been the house of E.J. Balak. Um, if you don't recognize the name, he was the photographer who. Uh, photographed so many of the Storyville prostitutes, and um, he was uh, played by one of the Carradine brothers in the uh, 73 movie Pretty Baby. Um, so yeah, that was, that was a pretty interesting thing. Now, Norma's house was uh, very close to uh, Pete Herman's nightclub. Herman was one of Wallace's husbands that ended up being a lifelong friend and business associate. Um, Pete Herman was born Peter Galata, uh, and he was a boxer who won the World Bantamweight Championship in 1917, uh, but unfortunately he would later go blind uh, from damage he suffered as a boxer. Now, Norma Wallace, <laughs> she's always had trouble with love. She tended to like much younger men, but, you know, even in her own words, uh, she wasn't really wife material. I couldn't make a go of it. Marriage wasn't for me. You know, when you're making money and you're running a whorehouse, you don't, uh, that makes you independent, makes you hard to get along with as a wife in the first place. Now, 
Wallace also had a, a torrid affair with a band leader, actor, and comedian Phil Harris. Now, uh, some of you older guys will recognize Phil Harris. If not, look him up. It was, a, it was an interesting time for entertainment. But I will tell you something about Phil Harris. Um, Harris went by his middle name, Phil, because his first name was Wongo. Now, if you ever feel like you got a shitty first name, at least it's not Wongo. Now, I don't want to give too much away on this book because it's got some real interesting reveals. It's just, it's a great snapshot of the New Orleans in the Tango Belt era. Now, Tango Belt um, has to do with when actually some dancing was made illegal. It's explained pretty well in the book, so I'm not going to go into it here. Um, but, you know, in Norma's own words... It was exciting. That's, that's it. The word is exciting. There was never a dull moment, and you can believe me when I tell you that. I used to wake up around noon and have my coffee and wonder, well now, wonder what this night's going to bring. There's also a great story with a uh, fairly well-known bisexual actress. Uh, she comes over to Norma's house to party. Uh, some, some funny stuff happens around that. Hell, she was even tied to the capture of bank robber Alvin Coppice. Uh, he was public enemy number one at the time. And um, that's one that old uh, J. Edgar himself ran down there to, to take credit for. Um, now, through this book, I will tell you, Norma Wallace has no problem naming names. Right? Hell, she goes beyond naming names by quite a bit. Uh, she even kept a black book with detailed physical descriptions. Was it unusual that it's big or small? Or did he have any marks on him? I mean, I haven't listed even a quarter of the specific people she talks about being in her orbit. But you know who isn't mentioned? Ever? Even once? Even anybody who might possibly be? Nah, I'll let you guess that one. I'd like to take a break to tell you about our new sponsor, Doodle Dan's Deals. Now, Playboy might be one of the most recognizable magazine titles in the world, and DoodleDan'sDeals.com specializes in vintage and collectible Playboy magazines and memorabilia. I, each one of these magazines is like a time capsule. It captures you know, the pop culture, fashion, technology, and lifestyle that was going on in the world. Uh, now, we all have that person who's a nightmare to buy a birthday gift for. So, try giving them a copy of Playboy from the year and month of their birth. Uh, the things that they'll discover will range from intriguing to fucking hilarious. Uh, I mean, I give these things as gifts all the time. People love them. So, vintage Playboy magazines and memorabilia, doodledansdeals.com. No apostrophe, doodledansdeals.com. Now back to the show. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw in a bonus review here at the end. Um, most of the reviews I'm going to do are, are going to be nonfiction. But here and there I might throw in um, a category I like, uh, historical fiction. And it's kind of a neat process because what will happen is the author takes you through real history by using a fictional character um, going through it so you can be through that character's eyes you can see all the events that happened 
and it's a neat, you know, it's a neat uh, way that fiction is done, uh, and you still get some information out of it. So, my last review is the book The Devil May Dance uh, by Jake Tappa. Uh, it takes place in Los Angeles during the very early JFK administration, and it covers this, this really high-tension relationship between Frank Sinatra, the rest of the Rat Pack, Sam Giancana, Johnny Roselli, JFK, and Bobby Kennedy. Now, I mean, Sinatra was in a double tight bind back then because, I mean, he really wanted to be a favored friend of JFK. He wanted JFK to stay in his place when he came out, out west. He really wanted to be part of that machine. But uh, Sinatra also had a lot of goodwill he owed uh, towards members of the family. And so... He was in a really tight spot because, you know, as, as, as most people will know about that administration, Robert F. Kennedy was being a, a huge pain in the ass. Uh, we'll get to that one in another episode. But, yeah, most people will know the, the, the RFK uh, mafia issues. In this book, uh, the fictional characters are a congressman and his wife. This congressman's a war veteran, and he's blackmailed into investigating Sinatra's uh, connection to organized crime. Uh, this congressman's cover is as a consultant on a war drama that Sinatra is filming and starring in. Now, I'll tell you, this book isn't high prose, um, but I found it enjoyable. You know, most of the people and the situations are real. Um, it's going to, uh, some of the public images of well-known people are challenged using real facts from the era. You know, it's going to, going to change the way you see some people. You know, uh, the, the surface was not exactly the way things were. But um, yeah, if you like true crime novels, this will keep you entertained. It's going to be fun to listen to. Um, yeah, I did it on audiobook. So yeah, I, I recommend The Devil May Dance uh, by Jake Tapper. So that's it. That's, uh, that's the New Orleans Mafia podcast for this week. I appreciate all of you coming in. Um, really, thank you so much for listening. And be well. We'll see you next time.